Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. probably regarded as something which is relatively straightforward, but that later it perhaps is something which which takes on a kind of a different kind of significance in that, you know, when they're in the parachute regiment, everybody understands what they had to do. Everybody knows what happened. Everybody kind of shares a sense of what it was like. But sometimes I think much later when they're out of the army and looking back on it, sometimes it can be difficult to prevent what they did taking on a more human dimension. I mean, what one of them said to me was, you know, he he had bayoneted in Argentine, it was a shape in his dreams. And then, you know, as a much older man with children himself, one night in his dreams, he found himself bayoneting his son. And I just thought that's a sort of terrible evocation of, of a realization of what it meant to take a life in a more human way once the once the fighting is over and once the kind of military context has, has been removed. That's not to say that they regret what they had to do, because I think they 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 firmly believe that, you know, they were put into that position to do that job and therefore they had to do it. Uh, and that's the kind of that's the context in which I think they, they, they understand it and see it. We were paratroopers, we loved no one. We had not been taught to love. If one of us died, then no, it was not a happy event. But not one of us had been forced to join the army. We were professional soldiers. We fought for the living, not the dead. The dead were dead. The words of one British paratrooper, taken from Helen Parr's engrossing new cultural history of the Parachute Regiment, Our Boys, The History of a Paratrooper, published by Alan Lane. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What does it mean to be a paratrooper? And is it all about mental toughness, resilience and willpower? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with British historian and writer Helen Parr, whose new book, Our Boys, The Story of a Paratrooper, has just been published by Alan Lane, where Helen writes... The men in the parachute regiment dreamt about battle and saw glory in death. But nobody fantasised about being injured. Helen goes on to state, To fear was to surrender, to become an ordinary man with human frailty. The power of the regiment undone. So who were the parachute regiment? And how has Britain's relationship with the soldiers changed over the last 20 years? Hello, my name is Helen Parr. I'm a historian and I work at um, Keele University. I've just written a book, Our Boys, The Story of a Paratrooper. It's based on the story of my uncle, who was a private with the Parachute Regiment. He joined age 17 in 1980 and he was killed in the Falklands War. The book started with his story, but it's more than that. It's a social and cultural history of the Parachute Regiment and also of 1970s and 1980s Britain. And it's a study of the close quarters combat that the paratroopers did in the Falklands. And it looks at the aftermath of of combat. So 
I'm going to read a bit from the book. And the bit I've chosen is a bit about grief because the starting point for me was growing up seeing my my grandmother's grief. And that, for me, when I started, was, was the story of the Falklands War. And when I came to write the book, I realised that it had to be about more than that. But nevertheless, it's it's I tried to sort of reflect on how my grandmother coped with the death of her youngest son. Um, and I tried also to think about what I could and couldn't rightfully remember about that. So the section starts. I probably remember more from when I was older and the grief was not so raw. In 1987, my family moved from Suffolk to the northeast so that my father could take up a job in Sunderland. Distant from my grandmother geographically, it was a seven-hour car journey and she could not drive that far by herself. I think the issue of her grief was, for me, refracted through my parents' concerns that it was harder to look after her now they lived so far away. Elderly single women, along with young single mothers, were the most economically deprived groups in the UK in the 1980s. But hers was not so much an economic problem. She won on the football pools in 1992, and after that she had spare money. She used it to decorate her home, buying new furniture for the back room, where, after she retired, she spent a lot of her time reading Catherine Cookson, historical romances, the Daily Express, and watching videos on her new VHS machine. She liked to go out walking, which she did until arthritis prevented it. She liked to garden and to arrange flowers for Dave's grave. She was humorous, not at all severe or sanctimonious, and she made few demands. She used to paint, but I'm not sure she did much of that after she retired. What was the point? Grief made her lazy, even slovenly at times. I remember, in what must have been the mid to late 1990s, showering in her house and realising that what she used as shampoo was in fact washing up liquid. By that time, she was in the early stages of dementia. Night and day blurred together, and towards the end of her life, she spent her time in her comfortable armchair, sleeping when she felt like it, and subsisting mainly on tea, whiskey and cigarettes, Craven A. She died in 2000, aged 75, from a ruptured stomach ulcer. Right up until the end, she loved Lady Diana Spencer. Diana's beauty and demure suffering appealed to her. Brought up in the country and schooled on Christian thinking, she saw suffering as part of life. In some ways, she was ashamed of what had happened to her, and she seemed to believe that Dave's death was punishment for her sins. The sins of her own parentage, the unmarried conception of her eldest son, the separation from her husband, and her failings at the womanly craft of housekeeping. Her lot was her fate, and she did not complain about it. Christianity informed others' perceptions of grief too. Like many people, while 85% of people in the 1980s gave a religious affiliation if asked, only 13% regularly went to church. Frieda McKay said that she could go through the creed, and she often found herself singing hymns, but she found it hard to believe in God. I couldn't understand why God would put me through all that. Her son Ian's death was not the only terrible event in her life. She had separated from her husband and found happiness with another man, Jeff. A few years later, in 1994, Jeff died very suddenly from cancer. Both her younger sons died too. They had been born with disabilities and had been expected to die in childhood, but they survived and died in 1989 and 1995. It was at that point that Frida had a breakdown. I had nobody to look after anymore. During the Falklands War, she thought she did not believe in God, but she used to go to church. At one stage, she began to see red everywhere. 
Everything was red. I'd convinced myself that it was blood. Everything seemed red around me. After Jeff died, the vicar giving the sermon at his funeral did not say anything about Jeff's life, which Frida had wanted him to do. After that, she abandoned the idea of faith. Really well done on the book, Helen. I have to say it was an unbelievably absorbing read, very raw in parts, very candid, but hugely humbling. And um, how you sketch out your own family's story with, I suppose, a cultural history of um, the Parachute Regiment is um, it's fascinating. And um, as I said, it's, 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 it's so expansive in terms of the ambition of the book, but you give so many um, witness testimonies um, and give so much background to, um, I suppose, the theatre of war that it makes for a very stimulating reading. Um, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. When I say the word paratrooper, what jumps into your mind? Where do you go? What do you automatically think of? Well, I think that many people would probably think one of either two things. They would either think brave, matchless, even perhaps fearless soldiers, the sort of elite of the infantry. But others might think psychopaths in uniform but obviously because of my own family's history I think about my uncle who you know I was seven in 1982 seven when he died I didn't really know him very well so he was this kind of older figure but still a teenage boy Um, and he liked you know he liked the outdoors he liked cross-country running he liked fishing and going down on the marshes um, wild fowling and, um, and bird watching and things like that. Um, and that's what I think of. So I think I always knew that paratroopers were more, that, that there was more to it than the kind of stereotypical pro or anti views that, that you often get um, when you say the word paratrooper. I was very interested in um, your decision uh, to actually write the book because I can imagine you had a range of um, different types of emotions, um, both as an historian and as a family member writing a memoir, but also a cultural history of a of a regiment. Um, you open the book in a very powerful way. You you open the book with the news your parents got when your uncle Dave um, they were told that your uncle Dave had died, and then you bring the reader straight into the um, the the graveyard where your uncle is buried and you write I began to realise that the history of the Parachute Regiment and the Falcons War was not quite as I had supposed I'm just wondering um, did you discuss it with your family before you set out to write the book? Not really I think I'd always thought since I was a child that I wanted to write something about the Falklands War but I think it was hard to know what it was going to be and then I think because of the way that I'd sort of you know, as grown up witnessing the after effects of the Falklands and seeing the kind of slow effect that it had on, on my grandparents, particularly on, on my grandmother. But then, you know, as a historian, I I could see immediately, as soon as I started doing the research into the book, I could see that it, it the history had to be much more than that. As soon as I started, I sort of made contact with people in the parachute regiment. And as soon as I started to talk to them, I realised that, that the history of the parachute regiment um, this enormous pride in the institution, this enormous pride in their history, and that I couldn't even have a hope of understanding my uncle's life unless I I, I took that on, unless I kind of I tried to understand that. Um, and then when I, you know, I always wanted to know why he joined up. And, and again, once I started to sort of to, to look into that into that history, I realised 
um, it was a way of, of sort of of looking at 1970s Britain and of trying to see the kinds of things that drove men um, or young men um, into a regiment like the Paras. And when I started looking at the Falklands, I again I wanted to I wanted to understand what it had been like for them, but I I also wanted to put it into context. I wanted to understand what they had actually done. Um, and, and to put the sort of understanding of, of their experience into that sort of quite specific. So it could be both both sort of specifically about the Falkland, but also to draw out what's universal about it. Because, you know, ultimately, this is a book which I think is very much about human beings, human beings put into very difficult uh, positions. Uh, it's about the sort of the, the feelings that they have um, during and then after uh, this experience of kind of, of, of intense combat. Yeah, I have to say how you write about the psychology of fear and how you tease out issues in relation to grief and post-traumatic stress disorder. It's hugely interesting and I'm, I'm sure we'll reach out to lots of different types of readers. I'm just wondering, Helen, um, your Uncle Dave joined the paratroopers um, just after Bloody Sunday. And I'm wondering, um, is it fair to say to a degree that the Falcons War transformed the reputation of the Parachute Regiment, that in a way it kind of rehabilitated their reputation to a degree? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly what it did. I think, you know, the reputation of the Parachute Regiment was in a very difficult place in the 1970s. Um, as you know, members of one para shot dead Irish civilians marching in Derry, uh, 30th of January 1972. Um you know, there was an inquiry immediately afterwards, which nationalist opinion regarded as a whitewash. Um, and the idea that, that, that the Parachute Regiment were a kind of, I don't know, one journalist quoted it as, that, you know, the mailed fist of the British Army's posture in Northern Ireland, I think was, was relatively prevalent, perhaps sometimes even within the British Army itself. I think there was a sense in which people questioned whether Britain really needed, you know, if, Britain's, if the British Army's task was counterinsurgency, do they really need airborne troops who are trained to kind of to parachute behind enemy lines, who pride themselves on their um, their ability to endure extreme conditions, on their ability to kind of to to to, to be aggressive when it's when it's when it's required required of them? So I think there was there was sort of a certain degree of questioning about about the usefulness of of the parachute regiment in in the 1970s. But I think the Falklands War completely transformed all that. They they fought you know, some iconic battles in the Falklands. Um, they, they took casualties in those battles, but they also won two Victoria Crosses. Um, and I think, you know, the, parach the paratroopers came home from the Falklands very much foremost amongst the men uh, that Margaret Thatcher referred to as our boys. I was very interested reading about how some people became a paratrooper. Like some people, they just wanted to get the hell out of their family. Others, they just wanted a bit of adventure to travel the world. Others were either stuck or stuck in a relationship or for a whole range of different reasons. And then, of course, there was others that came from um, a, a military family and a military tradition. and They felt it was their obligation and duty. You write, becoming a soldier was about more than just the army. It was about reaching maturity and therefore about becoming a man. To Deciding to join signalled readiness to assume responsibilities, to continue a family tradition, perhaps to improve prospects for marriage, and if called upon to assume duty to the country. And you also write that some men carried an almost spiritual view of duty as an honour or a calling. I'm just wondering regarding that, um, when you square up your own family history and you look at the different reasons why your uncle became a paratrooper, I'm just wondering, how do you understand it all? And then within that, what do you think may 
makes it because a lot of people would see it as just a badge, you know, a badge of, I suppose, manliness, what it means to be a man. Some would see it as just, you know, the ultimate resilient statement. I know. I think that what is important to remember is that the Second World War is still relatively close. And I think there's a really strong association, which isn't just held amongst military families, but it's sort of prevalent in the wider population, that becoming a soldier is is becoming a man. And it's becoming a man because it's demonstrating a willingness to um, to, to, to step up to what I think was quite widely seen at that time as being the ultimate responsibility of manliness. And that's being willing to kind of to lay down your life for your country. Um, and that might sound a bit strange from the perspective of today, but I think it's something which is very much there uh, in culture, um, largely because of the Second World War um, and the sort of, the, you know, the fight against Nazi Germany. But at the same time, I think we can't ignore the fact that there's a there's a social context as well. And that it's certainly true that at least for many men joining the ranks of, of the army, um, they they do come from some um, probably some of the most deprived backgrounds that it's possible to have in Britain in the 1970s. So I spoke to one man who had grown up in an orphanage. Um, he said, you know, he had no family uh, when he left the uh, the orphanage, age 16, he was briefly in the Merchant Navy, and then he spent some time on, on the streets. Um, he saw an advert for the army, which, I mean, he said, join the army, get three meals a day. So he joined the army. Um, and I think, you know, there were a number of boys who, who did choose to join the, the infantry, who had grown up in orphanages and children's homes, or who had had very, very difficult um, home lives, uh, sort of experiencing domestic violence, or been badly bullied at school. I also think that, and I think this is true in my uncle's case, um, he hadn't done very well at school. Um, so he left school um, with only two C CSEs. Uh, in the year that he joined the paras, 1980, 79% um, of the paras intake into the ranks had left school with fewer than five CSEs. So I think that, um, you know, perhaps they, they've never really particularly been interested in, 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 in school. But I think that they are actually looking for more from life. So again, in my uncle's case, you know, he left school, he went to work in a pea factory. And according to my other uncle, he was just mindlessly bored. He couldn't bear the kind of the monotony and the, the, the futility of, you know, my other uncle said it was push, pushing a pea with a broom. And I think he, like many of the others, he wanted he wanted excitement, he wanted adventure, he wanted the possibility to travel, he loved the outdoors, he wanted to, he wanted to work outdoors. Um, and I think when he joined up, you know, the things that appealed to him were the kind of the field craft and the soldiering uh, and the, 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 the sort of the physical challenge of it. Um, and I think that's true for, for a lot of them, certainly a lot of them I, I spoke to, they joined because they, they wanted to make something of themselves. Um, they, wanted to, they wanted more than the kind of repetitive labour or, or, or you know, they didn't want to follow their fathers down the pit or into the factory uh, and so on. 
presumably though Helen that that training that different um, the, the different guys got would have changed their perceptions of themselves and what they had to offer the world like if you look at it from a very kind of basic level you know uh, close quarter conflict or close quarter combat you know having been trained in that that would instill a huge feeling of I suppose control confidence and um, and I suppose resilience and I know that you go into um, stuff related to the basic whales the um, the endurance training that they went through like that alone if you could actually uh, have the steel to get through that um, you would feel sort of invincible or certainly would give you a promotion in terms of your positioning in the world I think that's absolutely right um, I think the fact that it was so difficult to, to pass and you know the, the figure normally given is that fewer than one in three actually passed the training um, and I, it, you know, I thought that that was probably a myth, but looking at the figures, it's actually, it was the case. It's incredibly difficult to get through the training just because of the demands made on them. And therefore, um, therefore passing the training was transformative. I think it, it, it really did alter the way in which they thought about themselves and their capabilities. Um, I think training in many ways is quite a profound experience. So on the one hand, the, the physical demands were immense. Um, they had to be exceedingly fit to, 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 to get through. But at the same time, they also had to have, you know, what the trainers would have referred to as moral fibre or mental toughness. They had to want to do it. They had to kind of to demonstrate the determination to keep going when it, when it sort of seemed uh, hopeless or impossible. And I think that the effect that that had I mean, one of them said to me, it's like they break you down. They break you down from what they were and build you up into something else. To, you know, they make you into a soldier. And I think it was a process of um, sort of taking out their individuality to an extent and replacing it with, um, with the primacy of, of the group. So becoming a soldier was, was becoming selfless. It was the willingness to put the group before um, before the self, um, in order that you know that they could have the honour of kind of being able to follow uh, in the proud history of, of 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 the parachute regiment. So I think it was I think it's a very profound transformation. Um, it obviously is also really strongly connected to, to to becoming a man. I mean I think that's quite explicit in the way in which they talk about it. Sort of becoming a paratrooper was becoming a man and. You know, from one of them said, you know, going home in uniform, um, showing your mates, showing off to the girls, um, it was brilliant. Uh, they kind of they 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 liked the status that it that it gave them. It made them feel proud of what they'd achieved. Some of your case studies make for um, such astonishing and such powerful reading and I was surprised at how candid and straight up and direct um, some of uh, the um, former soldiers, some of them what they said to you and what they were willing to reveal to you and I'm sure that was a very interesting space to navigate both as an historian and also in terms of human psychology. Clearly your uncle Dave died in the Falklands so I can only imagine that gave you somewhat of a if it doesn't sound too uh, crude, a diplomatic passport, if you will, into some of the interviews. And um, obviously you're a trained historian, work for a big uh, university. So I imagine, though, um, you know, the trust in getting people to, to how people were willing to say stuff to you uh, was quite something to navigate. But you um, you go into very uncomfortable stuff in relation to the theatre of Roar. And I'm just wondering, how big a taboo was killing, Helen? 
I think that, in one sense, it's not a taboo in the sense that it's their job. So what I think people wanted to impress on me was that, you know, they had to kill if they were called upon to do it. That's what being a soldier is about. So that's not to say that it's not a big deal, but just that the professional mentality is that it's part of the role. And in some ways, it's quite simple. You know, in a theatre of war, they had to kill because if they didn't, they might be killed themselves or their mates might be killed. And I think that's that's sort of enormously important um, psychological point for many of them. You know, if if I don't kill him, he might kill my mates. And that sort of is, you know, in that sense, they've got no choice. They've they've got to, they've got to do it. But I think that at the time, it's probably regarded as something which is relatively straightforward. But that later, it perhaps is something which which takes on a kind of a different kind of significance in that, you know, when they're in the parachute regiment, everybody understands what they had to do. Everybody knows what happened. Everybody kind of shares a sense of what it was like. But sometimes I think much later when they're out of the army and looking back on it, sometimes it can be difficult to prevent what they did taking on a more human dimension. I mean, what one of them said to me was, you know, he, he had bayoneted in Argentine. It was a shape in his dreams. And then, you know, as a much older man with children himself, one night in his dreams, he found himself bayoneting his son. And I just thought that's a sort of a terrible evocation of, of a realisation of what it meant to take a life in a more human way once the, once the fighting is over and once the kind of military context has, has been removed. That's not to say that they regret what they had to do, because I think they 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 firmly believe that you know they were put into that position to do that job and therefore they had to do it uh, and that's the kind of that's the context in which I think they 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 understand it and see it. Helen, you write in the shock of the moment, many men maintained a robust defence against pain. Don't let me die, lads. Don't let me die. I don't give a feck about my legs. Just don't let me die. And you highlight that how many men called out for their mothers. Um, on the battlefields and that, you know, here they were trained, super resilient, uh, super competent, had gone through so much um, training uh, and so on. But ultimately that they were boys and sons and very much a flesh and blood on the on the on the battlefields, weren't they? I know. I know. It way for the... such moving reading, um, and then you have different, different. Some of the different regiment reminisced about you know trying to keep some of their um, their regiment alive while on the field and what they called out for. It's 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 humbling stuff, isn't it? I know, and I the, the, there's so many instances of men calling out for their mothers, and I think it's you know some of them chose to see that in terms of. You know, just at the the point of dying, a man would kind of put himself back into his childhood so that he could die almost in peace, kind of isolating himself from the, you know, the terrible things going on around him. But other people might say that it's a sort of, it's a it's a kind of human instinct that at the point of death, what men might want is the kind of the comfort of the first arms that held them. And I think for other men to, to witness that, 
I think it it's something that at the time they have to deal with it um, and move on and, and do what they have to do. But I think it's something which can really stay with them for a long time afterwards um, and bring, you know, because it's a terrible thing to have to see, isn't it? A, a friend kind of calling for his mother at, at, at the point of his death. I think that what they were trained to, to, to talk about fear, what they were trained was that it, everybody feels afraid. So it's it's perfectly natural to feel afraid um, on the battlefield. You know, as one of them said, uh, <laughs> there'd be something wrong with you if you didn't, because it's terrifying, um, the, the prospect that, 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 that you might die. But that courage was will. So in a sense, they were trained that they, they had to own that fear, um, but perform anyway. So courage was the the courage to kind of to do what they had to do despite the the fear that they that they might have felt but i think one of the things that i found uh, very striking was that they seemed almost to blame themselves if they got injured so one guy a young guy said um you know i thought i was good at soldiering but i couldn't have been that good because i got shot and that sense that it might have been their own fault that they weren't good enough to, to prevent themselves from being injured. I think it's um, that can be quite difficult to live with afterwards because because being a paratrooper is so tightly bound up with with being a man. I think for some of them, you know, they, they exhibited real courage on the battlefield, and yet because if they were injured. They were robbed of their ability to to be part of the regiment as it as it continued its way to, to the victory, and so it was difficult for them to to how to see themselves afterwards. You know, they 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 hadn't been afraid, and yet they'd still been been prevented from taking part. Um, and I think that was something which which for some of them was very very difficult uh, to to reconcile themselves to uh, in the aftermath. And also how they process their memories of a theatre of war and what happened and what they were willing to take responsibility or ownership um, of or not. And what was where the blurred moral or ethical lines were or in terms of just kill or be killed and basic survival. All of that is so traumatic that the memories of that must have been, it must have been very difficult for some of the men to go through that with you and to be so um, bluntly honest about it all. I think that Probably, um, although I didn't know this at the time, um, but I think it's probably quite a good time to talk to people about it. I think that probably the way in which they think about what happened to them probably has sort of evolved in the period since. And I suspect that, you know, well, there's actually, you know, there's quite a lot of recorded interviews that were done during the 1980s. Um, and those interviews, they tend not to talk so much about the, the sort of seeing their friends die. And, and I, I, I suspect that those are things that perhaps were still too raw to talk about directly um, at that time. But the, but the, with the passage of time, they've kind of found ways that they can deal with, with more of the experience and, and they have sort of processed it to a greater extent. Um, I mean, it's quite striking that for those who have had diagnoses of post-traumatic stress disorder, I mean, those diagnoses have often come in the late 1990s or early 2000s. That's sort of some time after the the, the conflict. Um, so I suspect that, you know, had I tried to interview them in the early 1990s, the story might have been uh, a little bit different. Um, perhaps some bits of it still as vivid, but perhaps some 
of the more human elements of it might still have been more masked um, or unprocessed, if you see what I mean. It must have been very difficult for you, though, on a personal level, because here you are as a trained historian. You're used to using, I suppose, rigorous research methods and all of that. And then you're meeting and researching and going through military records, different uh, regiments and their history. You're looking at, um, you know, a very controversial war. And then you're bringing in personal memoir and family history into that. So when some of these guys were describing some of the uncomfortable and um, morally ambiguous situations of face them and then you're here you're researching but you're also Helen who has whose uncle Dave had died whose granny was bereft to lose her son so that must have been a very uh, strange um, space to work through was it? I think so but I think I you know in a way I've really immersed myself in the history and it might sound strange but I think that's been quite a good thing to do and I really wanted to listen to what they wanted to say to me um, because I wanted to find out more about it. So it kind of forced me to reassess quite a lot of the assumptions that I'd had when I was younger. Um, You know, assumptions which just came about because of my own perspective. You know, I was a child when he died and then I grew up kind of seeing the effect it had on my family but not really knowing anything firsthand about the parachute regiment. So I think it sort of it 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 compelled me to to think about it differently and to try and put the whole thing into that bigger context and actually contextualizing his death um, and understanding it not just in terms of sort of parachute regiment history but also in terms of the history of the Falklands War in terms of the sort of history of 1970s society in terms of the kind of changes in manliness and all the rest of it that were happening during that time. Um, I think it's been it's been quite a good thing to do. Um, hopefully, I've sort of learned something about human beings in the process. Yeah, you write in your introduction somewhere that um, you know when you were pitching together and sketching out the book that you you kept asking yourself whether I was fur against the parachute regiment, and I thought that was a very brave thing to commit to paper. And I guess that throughout the whole writing process, that you you know you wavered between you committed to one feeling than another, and that it was not necessarily confused, but maybe more complex and multi-layered than you possibly had realised at the start. I think that's right. I think it's. I, I. I think that's right. It. It was. It was more complicated than I had perhaps initially assumed, and I felt that by dealing with it in an, what I hope is a very even-handed way, um, I think you can get more out of the history, sort of in understanding it rather than judging it. I think it exposes sort of perhaps more basic truths about it. Um, because ultimately it happened and you can't change that fact. And I think what I wanted to do was to try to to, to see it in its historical context um, and to see it, you know, not just as one thing or another, not just as good or bad, not just as, you know, the war over there and society over here, but to see what happened when I tried to to sort of put those things together. Um, And I think, you know, Doing it like that, it says something about about Britain society in that period. It kind of it says something about Britishness, and it says something about you know the relations between army and society, and hopefully it says something about society as well. Close in the sky. 
Oh. 